0: Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Cindy James. Starchuck Starchuk was sweaty and exhausted. He stopped his jackhammer to pull out a rag from his pocket and wiped off his drenched forehead. Damn, he thought. This weather is no joke, especially against the blistering hot pavement. The summertime in the lower mainland of BC tends to sway between weeks of rain and peaks of sunshine, but 25 degrees Celsius was hot for June, especially for Richmond. "'It's coming out just as fast as I can put it in,' Gordon yells to his buddies on the site as he sets down his equipment and walks towards the trees for a bathroom break. Within seconds, Gordon would run back to the road, as white as a ghost. "'Jesus Christ, guys. We gotta call someone. There's a dead woman over there.' She was dead. There was no doubt about that. And even though this was the first dead body Gordon had ever come across... He knew right away this was no ordinary dead body. A quick second glance easily provided that proof to him. She was laying on her side with her ankles and wrists fastened behind her. She had some sort of black material around her neck and her body was covered with flies. Gordon couldn't understand it. The poor gal had obviously been there a while from the looks of it. How did nobody else spot her, almost out in the open and so close to the road? And why wasn't there that heavy stench of death that they always talk about in detective shows? You'd think there'd be something unpleasant in heat like this. The body would be identified as Cindy James, a woman who'd been missing for two weeks. Almost immediately, news networks would be sharing details of a nearly decade-long horror story of a woman hunted down and scared for her life. By the time Cindy James went missing, she had reported over 100 incidents of stalking harassment, and assaults from an unknown assailant. But by July 12th, a month after her body was found, the RCMP would officially rule out any foul play, leaving the public to wonder, how could a person do something to themselves like that? And why would they? For the people of Vancouver, the case of Cindy James has ignited intense debate Was she tormented and eventually murdered by a crazed killer? Or was she a psychotic woman with multiple personalities? A woman who faked her own torment and choreographed her own death. You're gonna have to make up your own mind about this one. Because to this day, the death of Cindy James remains a bizarre mystery. The investigation of her death would lead to one of the longest and most expensive inquests in British Columbia's history. It would be ruled inconclusive, with her family believing she was killed and the police believing it was an elaborately staged suicide. While the cause of her death would remain inconclusive, one thing remains certain. Nobody agrees that ruling made any sense. And we're still left wondering, to this day, If it was impossible that she did this to herself, then who murdered Cindy James? Even as a child, Cindy held a sweet and nurturing disposition, always kind and eager to lend a helping hand. It felt natural to gravitate towards some sort of role where she could find purpose in comforting and caring for others. So after high school, she enrolled in nursing school. By the time Cindy was in her third year, she met Roy Makepeace, who was halfway through his psychiatric residency at Vancouver's General Hospital. Roy had just emigrated with his wife and four children from South Africa. After assisting Cindy on a research project about free love, The two would begin an affair, and despite the 18-year difference between them, their connection was undeniable. They were married four months after Roy's divorce was finalized. Cindy hid the wedding from her parents, possibly expecting their disapproval. However, later, they would only express their sadness and regret about that to her, wishing they could have been included in on such an important day. After 16 years of marriage, they separated, with Cindy taking their dog Heidi with her. Although their relationship would remain amicable, and even more so, with the pair still going on regular dinner and movie dates weekly. But what Roy once described as a match made in heaven eventually became what Cindy would call a bad marriage. Cindy would set out on her own for the first time ever in her life, renting the main floor of a house in East Vancouver as they would begin their trial separation in July 1982 just four months before Cindy's nightmarish story would begin. It wouldn't be until a few years into the stalking that Cindy would become convinced that maybe Roy had something to do with it. It's unclear if these feelings came from her own instincts or if it was a slow suspicion built upon the fact that the police automatically assumed from the beginning that if it wasn't Cindy herself, it must be the ex-husband. Roy Makepeace would be the first to ever accuse Cindy of multiple personality disorder and the possibility of being a danger to herself. And others: Are you denying it? Oh my God. I am certainly denying it. I always have denied it. I have absolutely nothing whatever to do with it. After the divorce, Cindy had a few dates, as she was never short of suitors, but nothing serious. Her looks almost that of a Disney princess, beauty pageant material, with a softness that was sweetly striking, but still approachable and warm. The girl next door with a gentle demeanor, but a fierceness in her personality that drew people in like a magnet. By the time of their separation, she was the founding director of Blenheim House, a psychiatric facility for children. Cindy loved to be around children and she loved taking care of others, always being sensitive and empathetic. It gave her a sense of purpose that nursing in the hospital didn't compare to. After feeling controlled and looked down on by Roy for the last years of their relationship, she was beginning to lasso a sense of self as her own person, and not just an extension of him. Many of her colleagues would remember Cindy as being their go-to person. Someone always willing to lend an ear, a supportive shoulder, or just a genuine interest in their lives and well-being. The absence of her would be found in every place she'd ever been. By October 12, 1982, Cindy would contact the Vancouver police for the first time to report threatening phone calls and break-ins to her home. On the 19th, someone had gained entry with a key to the house. Her pillow was slashed up, and the key was found on her bedroom floor. By October 31st, Pat McBride, a constable of the RCMP, would be sent to investigate. No useful evidence was discovered but he did help Cindy install deadbolt locks and requested a larger police presence in her area. He would soon sublet a room in Cindy's home. Being recently separated himself, Cindy offered, assuming that having a police officer in her home could only do good and add to the protection. Eventually, the two would begin to date for a short time, but his presence would only amount to a couple weeks of silence before he too would witness events like her phone wires getting cut, knocking on windows, back porch lights being destroyed. Many of the phone calls were partially traced, always too short to fully locate the specific origin. In a log that Cindy kept herself, tracking every incident, she made note of Pat moving out on December 1st. Not only did she feel that his presence wasn't helping and possibly making things worse, but he wanted too much from her, more than she was able to give. He was intense and Cindy just didn't reciprocate the love he declared for her, also rejecting his proposal of marriage after only knowing her for such a short amount of time. As the list of incidents grew, her ability to allow others to get close to her diminished. Beyond the occasional dinner date with Roy, Cindy didn't seek out romantic relationships once the attacks started. Cindy didn't want to feel loved, she just needed to feel safe. It was this soon into the investigation that Pat warned Cindy the police weren't going to do anything to help her, but steered her towards further protection, connecting her with Ozzie Caban, a former auxiliary RCMP officer running his own security business. Cindy hired him immediately. Even though she could barely afford Ozzie, she needed the best. Eventually, Caban would offer much of his services for free, unable to turn away a terrified woman not willing to take the chance of something happening to her because he refused protection over a dollar sign. Pat went on record to say that he never thought Cindy was responsible for any of the incidents, although eventually, he would become a suspect himself. And even though he was cleared, it's worth noting that a few years after Cindy's death, Pat would be stripped of his badge for similar attacks and threats on other women, allegedly having told one of them that they reminded him of Cindy. Pat McBride has since passed away, so unfortunately further details of these circumstances are unclear, undocumented, and hard to come by. There were also many attacks of a much more serious nature, often leaving her unconscious and near death. On multiple occasions, she was found by Caban, her friends, and even strangers, just barely surviving each time. On January 27th, 1983, Cindy's friend Agnes found her in the garage, unconscious. She had been packing boxes for an upcoming move. Her arms and legs were slashed, she was covered in superficial scalpel-like cuts, and she had a black nylon stocking tied around her neck so tightly that it had to be cut off. Cindy had opened the back door for somebody she thought to be McBride. She noted that the person's chin had hovered just over the top of her head as he stood behind her, making them somewhere around 5'10", and they were wearing gloves, and blue running shoes. The last thing she remembered was the man telling her, it will take a long time to die, before bringing her into the garage where another male was waiting. The attacker may have been referring to the method in the moment, but here, it really seems a precedent was set in stone, like a warning sign, a promising threat of things to come. By February, Cindy had moved to a new house, but within days, threatening notes and phone calls continued. Cindy moved again in April, and for months her employer, Blenheim House, received threatening letters addressed to her. Eventually her attacker would locate her new home and terrorize her further, going as far as to hang dead cats in her yard on multiple occasions, trample and destroy her garden, which she spent tireless hours working on. Ringing doorbells, booming thumps, the sound of attempted break-ins. Cindy would eventually stop reporting every incident to the police. Figuring they had such a low interest in her case, it would be futile. If they didn't believe her and Caban couldn't protect her, Cindy began to feel more alone than ever, dominated by the anxiety of the next attack. She couldn't understand why anybody would do this to her, and as her fear grew, any hope of living a normal life fell away bit by bit. In 1984, almost a year to the day of the garage attack, Caban would discover Cindy collapsed on her kitchen floor. She had been struck in the head, injected with an unknown substance, strangled with a nylon stocking, and her left hand had a threatening note that read, Now you must die, cunt, stabbed into it with a paring knife. A foreign hair would be found on her body, but never tested. Whether this hair is still included in the remaining evidence is unknown. The attack had begun at 5.15 p.m. and Cindy was able to radio for Caban at 5.50. 35 minutes is a long time to spend attacking someone in their home who is usually under constant surveillance. By now, they were aware of the many precautions Cindy had put into place for protection. This didn't sway the attacker, nor did it rush them. And once again, it seems that Cindy was left for dead. Yet, the assailant doesn't bother to get anything with more force than a paring knife. Doesn't slit her throat, doesn't stab her, doesn't even hit her head hard enough to leave any type of significant damage. This person knew just how much benzodiazepines to dose her with, without it being lethal. Dosages just large enough to incapacitate her, leave her confused, immobile, and unable to remember clear details post-attack. And who would the note be for, and the fear it provided? If Cindy was dead. For as much as this person or people could have enjoyed toying with authorities, the motive of fear seems once again solely directed to Cindy. It seems there's a sense of self-control they still needed to exert, walking the fine line between enough and too much. Unlike a lust killer, the dominance seems to come from the prolonging instead of the death itself. This was a custom-made nightmare for Cindy, specifically, and one that didn't appear to be near an end at any time soon. After the attack, Cindy moved into Caban's safe house, but by March she would move back to her home with a two-way radio installed. By April, phone calls to her home and work would begin again. In June, somebody would take her dog Heidi from her front yard while Cindy worked on her garden. When the panic set in and she realized her dog was missing, she went to her neighbor's house and called Caban, not feeling safe enough to go back inside. Kabam would arrive to find Heidi in Cindy's basement, tied tightly by the neck to a chair. Upon being cut loose, Heidi immediately ran into Cindy's arms. It had been Cindy's birthday six days earlier, and the attacker had left behind a note which read Happy Birthday in cut-up magazine letters, along with other sexually threatening words. There was also a Rothman cigarette, which wasn't a brand Cindy smoked. Months passed with continued incidents, Her phone wires cut time and time again, to the point where the phone company didn't even ask questions anymore, but just showed up to do their regular repairs. On July 2nd, two men appeared at her home, claiming to be the police, but when she tried to telephone the department to verify, she realized her phone wires had been cut and radioed for Caban. Cindy's mother would stay with her some nights and often they'd be interrupted by the doorbell ringing, by loud thumping and banging noises outside the house. They smashed lights and the glass windows on her screen door. One night, she heard a bang on her bedroom window and would see a man running towards a silver car parked behind hers. He looked towards her and waved. He resembled a man she'd seen running from her home earlier that week. Just a few days later, Cindy would notify Caban that she was going to leave her home to walk Heidi in the park and woke up in the Health Sciences Center Hospital. When the police asked her what happened, Cindy told them she'd been stopped by a dark green van with a white older man with a beard and a woman with long blonde hair asking for directions. Moments later, Cindy would stumble into an open house, barely breathing and losing consciousness by the second. The homeowner, Regan Trethaway, would cut the nylons off of her neck before she collapsed. The nylon had been so tight he was barely able to stick his fingers in to grip the material. She had two hypodermic needle marks in her right arm explaining the benzodiazepine found in her system later. Detective Smith would search the area where Cindy last was, finding her shoe with a broken strap and a drag mark in the dirt about 30 feet from the sidewalk. Caban would find Heidi near the Trethaway's home and also locate her car, still in the parking lot of the community center where she'd been. The day after Cindy was admitted, a nurse at the Health Sciences Center reported a man calling about hospital security Asking about their staffing and hours. After she heard a recording of Roy Make Peace talking, she said they sounded very similar, both with a slight accent she couldn't exactly distinguish. The next 12 months would play out hellishly for Cindy. She underwent hypnosis sessions in an attempt to recover any suppressed trauma or details she wasn't able to remember about her attacks. The sessions never really brought anything concrete except a story where Cindy recalled witnessing Roy Makepeace murder two people during one of their boating trips. Everything about this story is without actual evidence or proof. Roy denies anything of the sort. It would be around this time that he began to claim he'd always suspected Cindy of having deeply embedded psychological issues, like a multiple personality disorder. The harassment continued, although for this 12-month period the majority of incidents took place in December. A few letters, A few phone calls. Her wires were cut. The new year would be relatively quiet until her phone wires would be cut once again at the end of May. When it comes to the wires continually being cut, apparently Cindy could have invested in protective tubing, which would have fixed the problem. Why the phone company couldn't take the initiative for that is also unclear. I can't imagine that they were so desperate for her service of wire repair that it was worth sending out workers multiple times a week. It had been three years and she was tired of fighting to maintain any semblance of normalcy. She began to feel utterly hopeless, worn out from being on edge every moment of every day with no end to her torment in sight. She became more withdrawn than ever before, stopped eating and succumbed to the notion that the only way she'd ever have any peace in this world was if she was no longer in it. In June, Cindy was admitted to Vancouver General Hospital after telling her therapist she was depressed and wanted to die. Five days later, she would leave against medical advice of the staff with her brother, Doug. He was more than willing to bear the burden of keeping an eye on his sister, convinced that all she really needed was family and some time away from the nightmare that had become her life. They took a trip to Germany together, seeing sights and traveling to different cities. It was the most carefree she'd been in years, finally able to look forward without constantly having to look back over her shoulder for fear she was being watched. But soon after her return to Canada, the stalking would begin again, and Cindy would plummet to a new emotional low. She was admitted to St. Paul's psychiatric ward in downtown Vancouver and underwent serious psychological examinations by multiple doctors over a span of 10 weeks. All therapists thought she was genuinely scared and found her reaction to the incidents a natural progression to the terror she was going through. However, later, Many of them will give her extreme diagnoses, based mostly on loose observation. It might be worth noting that these sessions occurred before HIPAA laws, and Makepeace was most likely in on what was happening during her sessions and even giving his personal assessments and opinions to his colleagues before they'd even met her. By now, it seemed that nothing could deter her attacker, though. After a few more incidents, the VPD would begin a 24-hour stakeout on Cindy's home, utilizing 16 male officers to keep watch. After seven days of silence, it would be called off, seen as a complete waste of the department's resources. The next day, it would begin again with a silent phone call. She received more letters, a makeup bag full of rancid meat, and had a man pull down his window while driving, call her name and crossed his throat with his fingers. In August 1985, there was an arson fire in the basement bathroom The small window that was forced open was surrounded by untouched tall grass, cobwebs, and dust. By December, Cindy would move once again. This time, she went from Vancouver to Richmond, a city that is part of the Metro Vancouver area. This move meant that Cindy's case would change jurisdictions, the VPD would no longer be in charge, and the RCMP, a federal and national police force of Canada, would take over. To the further detriment of Cindy's case, the lead detective had already decided Cindy was crazy. A pretty woman flashing a smile at men around her to play victim. And that everything done to her was self-inflicted. All this before speaking even one word to Cindy herself. When it comes to the theory of multiple personality disorder, it's important to break down exactly what that's implying. MPD isn't something a person can switch on and off or use to their benefit when it's convenient. It's difficult to believe that throughout her entire childhood and adulthood, within friendships, her workplace, and relationships, it would not seep over and affect other parts of her life in negative and unpredictable ways. MPD was first characterized as a splitting of identities, as if separate people and personalities live inside one person. But by 1994, the name was changed to Dissociative Identity Disorder, which better reflects its true symptoms of fragmentation a condition where the brain, in a way, splinters off to protect itself from traumatic memories leading to a lack of a single unified identity. It's important to note that the diagnosis itself has become extremely controversial in the medical field. Some studies suggest that practices like hypnosis, used to recover suppressed memories, may do more harm than good and even induce symptoms of DID to an extent. There is no proof that Cindy couldn't remember her childhood, but rather was adamant not to discuss it. The hypnosis sessions she agreed to were under the premise of recovering memories about the attacks, not her childhood. That lack of cooperation should not have led professionals to assume she was hiding information about traumatic events. In a way, disassociation is not a disease or disorder, but rather a mode of consciousness affecting all of us to different degrees of mildness or extremity. And unfortunately, being as complex as it is, there is no specific test to determine DID and it takes years of intense observation to confidently arise at such a conclusion. It's also important to distinguish it apart from other mood disorders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. On June 2nd, 1988, Cindy watched a TV special about PTSD in Vietnam vets and identified with many of the symptoms described, such as nightmares, anxiety, mistrust in people, flashbacks, anger, and suicidal feelings. That night, she wrote in her journal, As the man said, It's not just the memories. It's breaking down under it that is so hard. I know what he means. Sometimes when the memories become overwhelming, I feel as though I'm only now allowing myself to feel the terror and pain that I couldn't deal with at the time. I had to wall the feelings off or I wouldn't have survived. And I also understand why they find it so hard to talk about You feel like no one will really understand you, but you're also afraid of being overwhelmed by your own feelings to the point of where you feel trapped forever in the heart of it. So yes, it seems that to a degree, Cindy disassociated. She consciously made an effort to block out the painful fears that multiplied with each attack. To go a day avoiding those thoughts as much as possible was something she considered a success. But given her experiences, It's a gradual and logical progression of a person isolated from the world she knew and even to an extent, herself. She had become a shadow of the woman she once was. If nobody believed her, and nobody could protect her, what other choice did she have? Cindy would return to Blenheim House after a few months of sick leave, but she was asked to resign almost immediately. Falling back to her original degree, Cindy would begin a nursing position at Richmond Hospital. But this experience added to her shame and humiliation. She was heartbroken to lose the thing that gave her drive and purpose. Now everything, it seemed, was falling apart and away from her, and there was nothing she could do about any of it. Agnes and her husband Tom often stayed over at Cindy's One evening, they witnessed another fire in Cindy's basement. Tom saw a strange man on the corner of her street who, instead of getting help like Tom yelled at him to, quickly ran and disappeared into the night. Agnes claimed Cindy was with them the whole time, including when the burglar alarm went off. However, the police noted that the basement windowsill had undisturbed dust. They claimed that this was the only way an intruder could have broken in and therefore noted the incident as self-inflicted. Cindy was hysterical at the idea that her friends could have been hurt. Agnes and Tom weren't the only ones to witness incidents. During the last year of Cindy's life, she had a tenant, Richard Johnston, renting out her basement. Richard claimed to witness attempted break-ins and many notes left for Cindy, who he said was often terrified, uneasy, and extremely on edge. Since incidents only seemed to occur when surveillance was down, Many people wonder why the police didn't put more of an effort into watching Cindy during those off times. But the manpower and expenses were never approved. One officer on the case secretly installed a 24-hour camera in a neighbor's yard. The neighbor was the only person aware of the camera's existence, but it failed to film in low-light conditions and provided nothing to go on. On multiple occasions, Cindy agreed to take lie detector tests in an attempt to prove to the police that she was telling the truth. All of them were inconclusive, most likely because of her frantic emotional state throughout the questioning procedure. Much of Cindy's behavior is scrutinized as well, such as a night where she chose to open her window when she slept or take her dog for a walk at 3 in the morning between her shift work at the hospital. But often, many victims veer between helplessness and defiance. There had to have been moments where Cindy just didn't hope the attacks would stop, but wanted to stand strong in the face of them attempting to rekindle any sense of the independence and freedom that she'd lost. In October of 1988, Cindy was found in her carport at Claysmith Road in Richmond. She was unconscious, with her legs dangling out of the open driver's door, naked from the waist down. Her hands were tied, her mouth duct tape and a nylon stocking was of course tied tightly around her neck. Tilly Hack recalls the police indicating that, had Cindy died from this attack, her death would most certainly have been ruled as homicide. This incident left Cindy comatose just after she'd used Ozzie's handheld alarm to alert him. This time, the threats heightened as the male voice warned her that he knew how to find her family and that her mother and her sister would be in danger if she kept trying to save herself. She was so afraid to tell me something. And she said, "Uh, I need help badly, but I can't tell you, Mom. If I do, I'm afraid for you. And I would say to her, don't let it get you down, fight, fight, damn it, girl, fight. And she'd say, I'm trying, mom. It seems like even throughout the surveillance and phone monitoring, the police never fully believed Cindy enough to take looking for a perpetrator seriously. If the police had taken more time to dissect the manner of the attacks, along with the bits of evidence each attack left behind, whether physical or just characteristic, they might have been able to build a clearer picture of who to look for, whether in Cindy's life or otherwise. A lot of time was spent clearing Cindy, and she would be scrutinized under a microscope for the slightest type of behavior that didn't align with what they thought a victim of this nature should act like. She was often berated for not being able to remember useful details, although Cindy expressed that she feared the multiple injections of substances, and being unconscious so many times for so long had severely affected her memory and brain functioning. Even so, after each attack, it's as if the most important suspect to eliminate was always Cindy. This perspective only provides logic if you remain in tunnel vision of one theory and does a disservice to seeing the whole picture. Had the police truly believed Cindy was a victim by someone else's hand or, in the least, believed the possibility of an attacker was just as probable, They might have been inspired to gather more curiosity, extra ideas, or just better questions to ask Cindy and themselves. It wouldn't be until years later that Cindy's own family would hear a clip from a police interview about the attack. And like Cindy, they too would feel betrayed by those who were supposed to be protecting her instead of treating her like a deceptive criminal. It's clear that Cindy is traumatized and shaken. Maybe it's easy to get stuck on one instance where she left her window open, or that night she took Heidi for a walk. But Cindy adjusted her appearance, changed her name, moved multiple times, painted her car, switched her phone number constantly, barely left her house except to work, and rarely did anything without notifying Caban of the details. There must have been moments when giving every ounce of control over to a faceless monster was unbearable. Feeling powerless was in a natural state for Cindy. Her entire life had been built around the responsibilities of caretaking and being a source of strength for other people. Then Cindy was suddenly, and without warning, catapulted into a world where she had to live like a ghost. And many people want to blame her for forgetting to act like the prisoner that she was. With many victims of stalking, fear can come in waves. There are moments when a person cannot help but try to take the reins grasp for any feeling of control and free will that resembles a familiar life. Cindy had dozens of extreme and limiting measures put into place. The risks she took could be described as careless, but in another light could also be described as carefully calculated. But occasionally, she'd attempt to steal back that sense of security, and she sought out normalcy. Whether that meant taking her dog for a walk or fixing her garden in her front yard, the joys she asked for were so small and yet for some carrying out those actions undoes any validity of her being scared or unsafe let me be clear if it hasn't been made clear enough yet people who are harmed and killed by their stalkers bear no blame the simple truth is that there is no behavior set in stone for a stalking victim over time cindy began to display some of the most common symptoms depression hopelessness, memory problems, eating issues, flashbacks, confusion, and above all, an isolation like no other. Many people looking from the outside in cannot begin to comprehend the relentless terror that slowly affects every part of your life because no matter what, you never feel safe. It's common for stalking victims to lose time from work or to not be able to maintain any routine when it comes to regular activities. Eventually, having a life seems impossible. You have to learn to comply with the unspoken rules that someone has hatefully forced upon you. Cindy wasn't stupid. Every time she made a choice to do things like walk her dog, drive to work, or even water her garden, she knew it came with the possible consequence of an attack. In the same manner that not every victim acts exactly the same, not every stalker has the same motivations or tactics. Some are motivated by romantic rejection, while others prefer the false intimacy stalking imposes on their victims rather than cultivating a normal relationship. The more dangerous types are stalkers fueled by resentment and humiliation, not shying away from any means necessary to get their point across. And finally, the scariest are those who are simply predatory. They don't desire a relationship, but instead total control over the victim. And they'll use any means of fear and violence to achieve that. Taking the manner of Cindy's attacks into consideration, it seems that Cindy's attacker was most likely someone who held predatory tendencies. They didn't shy away from violence, they wanted Cindy to know it would be their choice when it was over, and they seemed to be confidently a few steps ahead of law enforcement every time. Many professionals who worked with Cindy claimed that she did not act like a typical victim, because she seemed to always be withholding information that could help the police's investigation. But the truth is, today, we know much more about stalking than we did during her experience. Statistically, more victims than not fail to report their stalking experiences because they think they don't have enough evidence or that it's a personal matter law enforcement can't help them fix. Unfortunately, there's some truth to that. Over 60% of stalkers continue to harass and assault their victims even after legal action has been taken. If we're to imagine that there were only one theory, that there is an attacker, we'd have to construct an image of who her attacker was. It would mean we're dealing with someone who has access to police detail like scanners, tapping lines, and other private information sensitive to the case. They have experience with breaking and entering, They use glass cutters, gloves, and are familiar with police practices on assessing a crime scene. They're methodical, meticulous. They have a careless disregard for law and a complete lack of empathy. They're most likely antisocial or in the least awkward when socializing. The chances of them living a double life are high and even possibly being in some sort of caregiver role or a position of power over others. Given the style of the attacks, and the fact that sexually motivated strangulations often involve pieces of lingerie, there might be a level of sexual deviance involved with a traumatic past. Any testing was always inconclusive, but Cindy was sure that at least during one attack, she was sexually assaulted, having found twigs and leaves in her underwear. They had access to drugs, needles, scalpels, and held knowledge of administration for doses, never giving a lethal amount, but still enough to leave her unconscious and affect her memory. And most importantly, they knew Cindy. They knew of her family, her schedule, her workplace, her friends. They felt confident enough to be found around those places and people without its surfacing suspicion. They knew what she did and when she did it. And like many stalkers, they were clever enough to stage scenes without leaving a trace behind. Many stalkers are skilled in setting the stage for the victim to look crazy deranged and as if they did these things to themselves. Although several serial killers were active in surrounding areas during the time of Cindy's attacks, it doesn't seem likely that any of them fit the timeline. However, no investigations were done regarding those possibilities and no research was done regarding nylon purchases or known criminals in the area. Cindy's life and most of the people in it were barely looked into. Even though the police claimed the last reported incident was her alarm going off on May 10th, Cindy's sister discovered that her personal calendar notes a hang-up call on the 23rd. Cindy hadn't told anyone about that phone call. Caban claims that the last conversation he had with Cindy, she sounded strong and determined, telling him, I am prepared to talk and prepared to fight. Caban believes that her phone line may have been tapped And that this newfound sense of determination and willingness to share more information may have been her undoing. Cindy's younger sister Melanie would receive a letter from Cindy in the mail on the bright purple stationery she'd gifted her the previous Christmas. It was dated May 20th and it read, I'm still being harassed from time to time by someone trying to break in here but I think we've come up with a solution if it doesn't cost too much. We're going to wire in a sensor an infrared detection system. If the outside light bulb is turned off, an alarm will go off for me, so hopefully we'll know when someone enters the backyard and we can quietly call the police when he's busy doing his thing. I'm really hopeful we may actually catch him soon. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I could actually start living a normal life again. I've almost forgotten what that feels like. The police have been pretty useless, so it would be wonderful to hand him over on a silver platter, so to speak. This would be the last time Melanie would ever hear from her sister. Days after reading the letter, she would learn that Cindy's car had been found abandoned in the parking lot on the 25th, and she was reported missing. Much has been scrutinized and assumed about Cindy's childhood. There isn't a lot known about Cindy's family, and even though Cindy was often pushed by psychological professionals to share details about her childhood, she refused to go deep. Her omission of information often led them to assume that something traumatic or catastrophic happened to her, but Cindy assured them that wasn't the case and certainly wasn't the cause of any depression she suffered from. She did divulge that she remembers having night terrors since childhood, holding a tendency to withdraw and internalize and had a hard time speaking up for herself often. And she did see similarities between Roy's personality and her father's, characteristics of control and belittlement that she didn't like. However, these admissions are nowhere near enough to support any childhood abuse or trauma. The few accounts we have of what their family life was like comes from her sister, Melanie. When Cindy's stalking incidents started, her parents were the first people she told. She went through great lengths to protect them from the danger she was in. According to Melanie, Cindy would often recall incidents to her with disdain, assuming her mother had already told her, but Melanie would often have no clue. Like many families, communication could be a major problem among them. In Cindy's family, talking like that could be interpreted as gossip instead of sharing. Discussing it behind Cindy's back, so to speak, would have been a breach of her right to privacy. In Melanie's words, we'd all lived our own lives and interacted when it suited us. We'd shared what we wanted, when we wanted. It was probably one of the reasons why Cindy's harassment escalated to the point that it did. Nobody had the full picture of what Cindy was going through and her family was included in that. It was also extremely difficult for Cindy to talk about her harassment. She was selective about what she shared and with whom, with the intention of protecting them from the worry and sadness she suffered constantly. And they eventually stopped asking because reliving the trauma was so challenging and exhausting for Cindy. Her family, assuming that her medical team and the police were handling things efficiently, figured the best thing to do would be to stay out of the way and leave it to the professionals. Cindy Elizabeth Hack was the second oldest of six children none of which came forward to report any strange behavior ever witnessed, and the idea that Cindy had self-inflicted this experience via an extreme mental disorder was preposterous and troubling to them. By all accounts, she had a healthy relationship with all her siblings, as well as her parents, Otto Hack and her mother Matilda, whom everyone lovingly called Tilly. Being a military man, Otto and Tilly had many travels abroad throughout his career, They were married for 68 wonderful years before Otto passed away shortly after Tilly's 88th birthday, and just before his own 90th birthday. Melanie recalls her father saying, well, at least the important one was celebrated, mom's birthday, and our anniversary, almost as if to say that his birthday wouldn't be significant. As time went on and Otto's physical health remained on a steady decline, he expressed sensing Cindy's presence, finding it comforting that it only got stronger and stronger as the end came closer. He was still doing so well mentally that he was able to have some wonderful conversations with Melanie before his passing. They talked a lot about Cindy, the book Melanie was writing about trying to find her killer, and his existential suffering around the limitations and dependency that his health was causing him. Months before, he had prepared letters for each of his family members, just in case he wouldn't have been able to delve into the conversations with them. He had the chance to tell her that there was no fear in dying, As he refused pain medication in those last days, suffering with grace and dignity, full awareness and feeling life for the last time, even if it meant hurting. Melanie spent days at his bedside, not realizing that they were his last and that the end was so near. Otto passed peaceful and prepared, ready to be reunited with his daughter, waiting until both Melanie and her sister Marlene were at his bedside just as he promised them. Melanie also expressed being grateful and honored to watch her mother go from the frustration and confusion of Alzheimer's to a peaceful state of feeling loved and safe. No stranger to grief or death herself, she would still feel a hole in the shape of her parents in her heart that would never be replaced. After Cindy's death, Melanie would go on to start a blog about dealing with her own grief and sorrows to help others through their healing building a purpose out of her desperate searching for any answer she could when it came to the mysterious and horrible loss of her sister. It's a beautiful and vulnerable testament to the ways pain can be useful and powerful as we meander through our own human experiences of life's confusing endings, and how, even when we think we cannot, or don't know where to look, it is still possible to find hope. On May 24th, Cindy finished her 12-hour shift at the hospital. It was a Wednesday and she had the next five days off with four of them full of plans. She woke up the following day, enjoying a slow morning without the rush of her regular routine and the intention of finishing all life's errands so she could enjoy her weekend. She got a makeover at a department store called The Bay before heading to work to pick up her paycheck. She was a little early so she had coffee with some coworkers who all made comments about how beautiful she looked it had been some time since cindy had done anything for herself not wanting to draw attention and it felt good to feel good she had contacted caban with more ideas on security measures and was convinced it would help her catch her attacker soon later that afternoon her downstairs tenant recalls seeing her leaving in her car sometime around 4:30. cindy had plans to play bridge with agnes and tom that night telling them she would be over at the Blendell Center to do some shopping and make a deposit at the bank. By this time, Cindy had gone from a quiet homebody to an isolated recluse driven by paranoia. Nobody was to stop by unannounced because it would send Cindy into a panic. But not only that, Cindy made sure to often tell Agnes exactly where she would be just in case anything happened. When Tom and Agnes showed up a little after 10, the sight of an empty home immediately sparked worry They knocked on Richard's door and asked if Cindy had been around. They had plans that night and her house was pitch black. Hearing that she hadn't been seen since that afternoon, they drove to the Safeway where she was supposed to be shopping. The sight of Cindy's car, alone in the middle of a parking lot, would send Agnes into a panicked frenzy with thoughts of the worst outcomes. Her belongings, Sears and Safeway bags, her purse, her favorite Herb Albert tape in the cassette deck, they were all there in the car, like a scene of life frozen. It was set to defrost, with her keys locked inside. And there was a dark reddish smear on the handle of the driver's side door. When it comes to the groceries, officers claim that there was no receipt in any of the bags. They would ring through the items in her bag, with and without nylons included, but couldn't come to a total that matched any receipts in the registers for that day. Melanie would later locate the grocery receipt, which they failed to take into account. It was for a different Safeway location, and it does not include the black nylons the police were looking for. There was also a croquet set and wrapping paper with receipts of 12.33 and 12.45 p.m. Her bank card and deposit slip receipt would be found together, underneath her car, 18 inches from the driver's side. Apparently, the way they were on the ground was described by police as being placed and not tossed, although nothing I've researched explains why. I can only assume they mean the receipt was flat underneath the card instead of folded around it. How police can predict the way something would fall every single time without fail is beyond me. Stranger things besides a paper not fluttering away from a plastic card have happened. She also could have been holding it while attacked making it slip from her hands or fall from a much shorter height. When police investigated the people who'd been using the bank machine around the same time as Cindy, they discovered Barry Leroy. He used the machine right after Cindy and told police that he saw her walking to her car. He didn't recall seeing her drive away and noted that the parking lot was empty of cars, traffic, and pedestrians. He would be the last person to ever see Cindy James alive. The blood on the car door would not be tested, nor would the six Camo light cigarette butts from her ashtray. And after May 29th, there would be no additional searches for Cindy. Otto offered over 500 military men to search, but the RCMP declined. Later, this would amount to a massive mistake. Not only would Cindy remain missing for two weeks, but if her body had been discovered sooner, it might have changed everything that happened from that point on. By the time Cindy's body was discovered, which was oddly and unfortunately on Roy's birthday, It was clear she had been dead for some time. There was fixed lividity on her left side, a process of blood pooling in the body after the heart stops beating and circulating blood. Fixed lividity occurs when the blood becomes permanently settled. However, Cindy's body was found on her right side, which is inconsistent with the rigor mortis state her body was recovered in. One of her fingers was scraped to the bone by the other, which was noted as most likely being an involuntary action. And the rest sounds like a bad game of Clue. Found near her body was a McDonald's cup in the woods, suspended in bushes, a soft drink straw found near her, a nylon stocking around her neck, and both her hands and feet were bound behind her, and they were also bound both together, which would have made it impossible for her to stand up or fully extend her legs and arms. These materials were not tested, Just days after, Melanie and her siblings would search the area where her body was found, discovering several discarded syringes that the police had failed to collect. Medical examiners would return the clothing she was found in to Otto shortly after the investigation. Cindy's father would throw it out, not wanting such a devastating memento of his daughter's death. For a case in which police claimed that there was a severe lack of evidence, they did a pitiful job of utilizing the evidence they did have. Even though she was in a shaded area with generally moist ground, her skin was parched from the sun. The mummification process had been well underway. Entomology reports the study of insects couldn't determine exactly how long she was lying outside. There were 2 millimeter maggots infesting the puncture wound inside her right elbow. Blowflies, the flies which hatch the eggs that become maggots, are the first to appear almost immediately and within minutes once a body has died. The stench of death calls out to them, like blood to a shark. When maggots hatch from their eggs, they are about this size when they emerge. Within 48 hours, they grow anywhere between 15 to 20 millimeters. Maggots feed off of the flesh and can usually consume up to 60% of the body in less than 10 days. It's even normal for the first batch to eat and remove up to 90% of the corpse's body weight within that amount of time and then migrate away into the soil sometimes 8 to 10 meters away or more. The grassy area she was discovered in was close to a four-lane intersection. It seems unlikely that the maggots would travel onto concrete, so if there were any, they should have been easy to find. Unfortunately, there were no reports of the surrounding area containing maggots, and the autopsy report seems to only note the flies among the body and the two-millimeter maggots found in her wound. It's important for investigators to find the oldest maggots near a crime scene that they can, but nothing was collected. Cindy was missing for 14 days. Given the state of her body upon discovery, it seems unlikely and almost impossible that her body was at that location the entire time. The toxicology report confirmed that she had taken nearly 10 times the lethal doses of both thorazepam and morphine. The amount of fluorazepam alone would have been at least 20 to 30 tablets worth taken orally. However, it is unclear as to how the morphine was ingested. If it was taken in pill form, there would have been larger amounts of residue. The amount of morphine residue left in her stomach suggests that it was injected via the bloodstream or taken in liquid form, which would only have to have been a small amount, maybe one and a half ounces. However, if it was in liquid form, there should have been some kind of container with residue itself found at the scene. Even if we assume Cindy took the flurazepam pills orally, the deadly effects of which Cindy would have been well aware of having been a nurse, it still doesn't explain the need and method for the morphine. Both by liquid or needle would have left Cindy incapacitated too quickly to discard syringes or containers, and certainly unable to tie herself up. And nothing of the sort was discovered at the site. More evidence than not seems to point to her body being dumped and that this was a secondary location after she'd already been dead for some time. A man lived in a blue van just feet away from Cindy's body for two weeks and never saw it or smelled it even throughout the June heat waves. But by the time of the inquest, his statements would be lost by police and he would disappear. There was an abandoned house near her as well in which local kids usually hung out in, and it was confirmed that at least one party was thrown there during her disappearance, but nobody saw the body. The autopsy would show that she most likely died from the overdose and not strangulation, although we can't be sure, since the time lost between her disappearance and the discovery cost examiners a precious window of being absolutely certain. But despite this and more, police would still conclude that Cindy had somehow walked away from her car that night to a random area over a mile away administered the drugs, tied a nylon stocking around her neck tightly enough to almost cause suffocation and hogtie herself. Even if Cindy had been suicidal around the time of her death, this method is utter overkill. Her person belongings were left in her car, which meant that she would have been carrying the nylon, syringe, drugs, and the rope to tie herself with in her arms while walking to Number 3 Road. I personally visited the Blendell Center, surrounded by bus stops and shops and I took the walk to number three road where her body was discovered. It's a long walk, much longer than I expected, and even in 1989 there would have been constant traffic. In those early evening hours it seems unlikely to me that Cindy could take the time to display such strange behavior without it being seen, both walking and administering drugs before such a lengthy and elaborate suicide out in the open. It seems even more impossible that her body was there for longer than a few days at the most, because the area is busy with constant cars and people at all directions. Cindy's funeral was on June 14th, just two days after what would have been her 46th birthday. Whether because he was unwelcome or of his own volition, Roy did not attend. The mystery surrounding Cindy's death would lead to a 40-day inquest, costing British Columbia over $120,000, which still holds up to be the most expensive inquest of the province to date. In total, it's estimated the RCMP ran up a tab of over $1 million throughout the years working on Cindy's case. An inquest is a judicial process to determine the cause of death, although Cindy's family felt it was if Cindy was on trial herself, and that it was more about proving her to be crazy and self-destructive instead of taking all possibilities into consideration. The inquest was split up into four parts. Part one, the most prominent incidents investigated. Part two, the death scene and RCMP investigation. Part three, her personal history and family background. And finally, part four, her medical and psychiatric history. Over 84 witnesses were called by the coroner to testify. According to Cindy's sister, Melanie, two people who testified at the inquest requested and were granted legal protection so their testimonies could not be used against them in future court proceedings. Roy Makepeace would take the stand to address Cindy's murder allegations from her hypnosis sessions. There he would state that she clearly had multiple personality disorder and was resentful about the lack of psychiatric care that she received. Police found it suspicious that Makepeace was the only other person to also receive two threatening messages for Cindy on his answering machine. But Roy had been out of the country for a few of the incidents, including the fires in her basement. There was speculation that he could have hired accomplices, but it couldn't go any further than that. Being one of the few who had access to and deep knowledge of the kind of narcotics Cindy was also dosed with, it seemed probable. But with no way to fact check her hypnosis story, and no real concrete evidence against him that their relationship was anything but peaceful even after their divorce, Roy was cleared almost as quickly as he was accused. During part 3, there would be a court demonstration by a knot specialist to prove that it was very much possible for someone to tie themselves up in the fashion that Cindy had been found. He was, however, not knowledgeable about doing so under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and it's important to note that the knots in the demonstration were different than the exact knot style of Cindy's ligature. He admitted to feeling dizzy after tying his neck, but it didn't impair his breathing enough to keep him from successfully hog tying his hands and feet. However, this man was prepared and entirely sober. One would also have to assume that even if Cindy might have had up to 30 minutes before the dosages kicked in, she would have been slowly and increasingly woozy and clouded. Not only was Cindy no knot expert, she would have been fumbling and slow. According to Melanie, it took him approximately three minutes to tie the knots. He approached it very methodically, first creating loops for all four limbs connecting them, stepping through with his legs and sliding his hands through the loops behind him in order to fall over onto his side like Cindy was found. After 40 long days, the inquest would come to an inconclusive decision. However, it seems that eventually Cindy's case was closed and ruled as a suicide. It should have remained open because of the inquest ruling. But like many of the tunnel vision decisions made by the police about her case, they'd already made up their mind. Having a closed case makes it much harder to reopen it for further evidence testing. The fibers, the hair, possible DNA. There's material out there to be tested thanks to the changes of modern technology in the forensic world. But one lawyer representing the police department would argue that in this case, there was no more evidence to be found. Even in death, it seems Cindy's voice remained unheard and dismissed by those who were supposed to protect her the most. And here we end where we began, without clear conclusions, with a handful of theories but no solid answers, the sense of a direction without a map, a mess of pieces with no instructions on how to reach the finish. Whether multiple personality disorder, PTSD, or another underlying issue, Cindy was failed by the psychiatric community. She was diagnosed and discarded punished for not complying as quickly as expected, her vulnerability held against her in the weakest of times. The police and RCMP failed Cindy as well. Even if the majority of their actions gave an impression of assistance, she was victim shamed and made to feel like a liar. Always having to prove herself first, always pressed with questioning and suspicion immediately following her attacks. No matter how many sessions of hypnosis, or polygraphs she took, it seems she couldn't escape the portrayal of a crazy person that they put on her. Instead of being able to embrace the role as a survivor, she was forced to feel like a victim by everyone around her. If the police were to reopen the investigation, it wouldn't necessarily bring conclusions or closure to Cindy's case. Although it would be a remarkable statement, a testament to the future, to how we do better when we know better the ability to admit mistakes and rectify them, for the sake of a questioning family, for the betterment of community versus its enforcement, and for the sanctity of finishing what is undone. Today's clearance rate in the US lies somewhere around 64%, quite the contrast to the 90% it was around 50 years ago. But even the smallest of forces can reopen a case, assigning new detectives with fresh eyes, Assessing the technology that is advanced since the case was initially evaluated and even take a deep look into new and old witnesses. There are no guarantees that anything would come from testing the envelopes for saliva, the foreign hair found on her, the cigarette butts found in her car and garage, but the possibility remains haunting to her surviving family members. There are no guarantees that they could relocate the man from the van, but it would be worth a shot. And at the time of the inquest, there was nobody who could read the biological samples efficiently. Today, someone might be able to describe the state of morphine in her blood and liver, possibly able to analyze how long it was before her death occurred and in what form the morphine had been administered, which is a vital ingredient to the RCMP's timeline of their suicide theory. To the officers who worked on this case, I can only pose one question. If it was your daughter, Would this be good enough? While packing and sorting up her mother's things, Melanie came across a poem by Tilly Hack called My Thoughts on You. I listened to the water's moan and watched the gull and flighty cloud. Above Atlantic sky, I knew the strength of nature's breath and shouted loud, a message I love you to the winds to bring to you. I stood alone upon the shore in pensive mood with embedded memory of mother, father, a closeness came for I recalled a time gone by where our joys were one. A kindness, smile passed and then my tears were gone. What was then will last. When you dream about it and think to yourself, What happened? What happened? What really happened? The truth is, however it happened, Cindy died afraid and alone from everything she loved. Found among the dirt and blackberry bushes, in a state no one would want to have someone they loved discovered. Her legacy colored by the guilt of her family, their unanswered questions living on, the hope of future memories dismantled and the disillusioned state of being stuck where there are no words, a parent who has lost their child before their own demise, leaving behind only the painful obviousness of the frailty of life and the bittersweet consequence of every smile, every laugh, every stolen joy lived without their daughter's presence, a grief that would spread throughout and become tender, changing form slowly over time, but never healing. the thrum of a heart beating out into the open curiosity of the darkness. First a guttural cry to repeat and disarm, until becoming a softened whisper. I'm sorry. I love you.